0: Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be continuing our theme of short films with the 1963 Kenneth Anger film, Scorpio Rising. A young man pulls the cover off a motorcycle. He cleans different pieces of the bike, detached and laid out on the garage floor. The camera pans over to see a pair of leather boots, provocatively discarded. Elsewhere, another man works on his bike, being observed by a kitschy, Halloween-esque Grim Reaper figurine. A quick cut sequence of men getting dressed in jeans and leather biker gear, set to Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet. A blond man lays on his bed reading the funny pages in the newspaper. Behind him, photos on the wall. James Dean, Marlon Brando, a skull. This man gets up, dresses himself to go out, and snorts a bump of cocaine. A group of men are roughhousing outside a church. The blond man stands inside near the altar, yelling and brandishing a gun. A motorcycle race somewhere happens. All this imagery is set to a collection of 60s pop songs and interspersed with images of Jesus Christ and Nazi symbols, swastikas, iron crosses. So that in so many words is roughly what happens in this film. This is somewhat akin to an earlier film we did Heaven and Earth Magic by Harry Everett Smith and that they're does appear to be a narrative element you can watch it and construct a narrative out of the images that occur on screen but you get the one gets the the distinct impression that the idea is, is kind of a, a visual poem a, a sort of a collage work as it were so all that all that being said Monica, I'm I'm wondering what your first impression of this was
1: I see why you draw the the parallel with Harry Everett Smith's movie, although this one, I think, has a lot more of a plot that you can follow. Sure. Um But that aside, I think the thing that struck me most about this movie was the great music in the background, which I know you're going to talk about a lot more later.
0: Oh, isn't, I mean, just as a, as a, like, non-analytical aside, isn't the music here wonderful?
1: Right, right. You just like (laughs) turn it on and like hang out and it's there's your soundtrack. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) I'm trying to remember if I saw this or or David Lynch's Blue Velvet first, but I think this was the first time I heard uh, Bobby Vinton's version of that song. And I love it. It is so pretty. Well, let's get right into it with the director, Kenneth Anger, who is a bit of a cult figure Uh, Certainly extraordinarily well-known in the film community. One of the bigger historical facts about him was he was actually one of the first openly gay filmmakers. Uh, I I was unable to find enough information to directly say that he was the first, but he was certainly one of the earliest openly gay filmmakers who also uh, tackled the issue of, of sexuality and gayness in his films, right? This was incredibly rare at this period. So a lot of his work deals really heavily with kind of the surreal, as well as elements of the occult, and homoeroticism, which I think we get a little bit of all three here. I did want to talk first about his uh, oldest existing film called Fireworks. By his account, he has been making films since, I, I think he said since he was about 10, uh, so there are several, uh, several that he did before this, but they've all been lost. We're not really sure what happened to them. But fireworks was actually a pretty, pretty controversial piece. So. A quick primer on this film it 's essentially a homoerotic dream come nightmare again, like with Sc- scorpio rising there there 's a lot of kind of the surreal and dream logic, uh, but it is very very kind of definitively steeped in homoeroticism. Um, and this, of course, made it uh, incredibly controversial for the period it was released. This film came out in 1963. Fireworks was released in 1947. Uh, so even Scorpio Rising had its its fair share of controversy. But, you know, you can imagine some 16 years earlier the the uh, this subject matter and this approach having been more controversial. The big story around the film is that Raymond Royhauer, who worked at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles, uh, he obtained a print of the film uh, intending to exhibit it and was actually charged uh, with obscenity kind of for for possessing that, that print. The prosecutor, William C. Doran, was going after him, but he wasn't just going after him kind of for the film print of fireworks. He was trying to go after the entirety of the Coronet theater because it was kind of reputed to have a gay audience at the time. I don't know if it, if it was like known as an exclusively gay theater, but it was certainly something that, that would have been offensive to a conservative prosecutor of this time. So the court case was kind of just a, a pretext uh, to go after this, this uh, gay space. The case is, It was upheld by a local judge, but then appealed to uh, the California Supreme Court by civil rights attorney Stanley Fleischman. And the California Supreme Court ultimately ruled that homosexuality was a topic that was protected by the First Amendment. So this could not be considered obscenity, uh, which was a pretty, pretty tremendous legal victory, I think. About 16 years later, after Fireworks was released, uh, Scorpio Rising would have kind of a similar trial. I couldn't find that much information on this, other than uh, Fleischman was also involved in that. Also, some other controversy about this film, Scorpio Rising, the American Nazi Party protested it because they felt it was an insult to the uh, Nazi flag, which Kenneth Anger has said in an interview that he did deliberately intend to insult them.
1: I was just going to ask really quick whether you um, had any idea what fireworks was about plot-wise. Is it kind of like Scorpio Rising or...
0: It is very much like Scorpio Rising without kind of the rock and roll um uh soundtrack but it's basically about a man who's like having having a dream in which he he's kind of pursuing a sailor and then he is uh, uh towards the end like sexually assaulted by a group of sailors
1: the one who's having the dream
0: right again very uh very much like dream logic uh there as in Scorpio rising, there's no dialogue or anything uh, so it's very very uh visually focused so uh as I had mentioned earlier Kenneth anger is is pretty widely known in the film world uh, a couple of directors who cite him as an influence are uh Gaspar noe the uh the very controversial French film director, as well as uh Nicholas Winding Reffin who. I suppose his his perhaps most pop-culturally relevant work would have been Drive back in around 2011, I believe. Uh, he also did Neon Demon and, and several other films. And Martin Scorsese also says that uh, Kenneth Anger and in particular Scorpio Rising were an influence on his work. And I think... For me personally, it's a little harder to see that influence later other than with Scorsese's heavy use of rock and roll in the soundtracks to his film. But if you go back and watch uh, Mean Streets with Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro, I think you can see a lot of this film's influence on that, particularly in the editing. And that film has has much more of a concrete plot, but gives itself over to these extended kind of dreamlike emotional sequences, I think are pretty clearly influenced by by this film. Also, I couldn't find any interview where David Lynch specifically mentioned Kenneth Anger, but he did do the film Blue Velvet, which, uh, as I referenced earlier, Bobby Vinton's song also appears in that, and in some ways thematically, these two are kind of the same. Uh, We'll be getting into the themes of Scorpio rising a little bit later, but with Blue Velvet, a lot of that is kind of peeling back the superficial layer of the 1950s, Idealized suburban American life, and so that's that's what that film was dealing with, and I think we can see some parallels here. So Monica, I was wondering with, uh, with all those influences mentioned, have you seen any kind of anything that you would think might be like an element, something that originated in Scorpio Rising, a stylistic choice or whatever, that we can kind of see in in more contemporary cinema?
1: I don't know if I can name particular films like I felt that it influenced, but kind of in general, I feel like the heavy sexual imagery, the drug use, and also zoom-ins to the actors, like parts of their body that are not their face, I don't feel like that kind of material was common prior to this movie. And I'm not saying that this movie instigated like filming that kind of material, but But just that just seems so much uh, so much more common in later films that we see or certainly films that we watch today. So last month we had watched The Man with the Golden Arm. And it's apparent that Frank Sinatra's character is addicted to a drug, although we don't we're not explicitly told what kind of drug. And you can't you can tell that he's going to take a drug, but you can't actually see him injecting himself. Right. 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 Okay. So, so it's, you know, what's happening, but it's not explicitly seen. Whereas I feel like in this movie and obviously later ones, it can be, it's more commonly explicitly depicted.
0: Right. I think your, your point about the kind of close ups of parts of people's body that are not their faces. uh, I think you're you're totally right. So many of the other films we've covered, uh, just kind of in general, uh, but certainly the ones we've covered before around 1960 or so, this was not like you would not see this kind of thing. Even in um, Psycho, which we covered a couple episodes ago, uh, which ran it, you know, kind of ran afoul of the production code, and there was a lot of discussion over its like sexuality and the violence. Uh, even there, I don't think we got as much kind of lingering on the physical form of the actors
1: right because in general why do you zoom in on a part of somebody's body that's not their face in general either it's something sexual or they got hurt there's some kind of violence right and both of those things were considered taboo
0: right before we get into the specific details of this film i'd like to give it a little bit of historical context Um, specifically what the 1960s and like 1963 looked like in the United States as it relates to gayness or or just uh, what, what perhaps would have been considered like aberrant sexuality, like non-normative sexuality. So first off, this is before the Stonewall uprising, which occurred in 1969 in the, the summer of 1969, which was basically a, a series of demonstrations after uh, the police raided the Stonewall Inn in New York City which was a well-known gay bar and this was after like this was kind of a common occurrence um the the police would typically target and victimize spots that were known for being popular with gay people there are people who are much smarter than me have written a lot A lot about this. I suggest looking this up. But this was this was kind of a a flashpoint for a, a sea change and the U S and it's, it's kind of like cultural understanding of like gay people as people and, and the civil rights battle there. That was a, that was a really important moment. And so this is, this film is 1963. That was 1969. So that was about six years after this. And I want to read this quote from Wikipedia from actually the Wikipedia entry on Stonewall quote, quote, Illinois decriminalized sodomy in 1961, but at the time of the Stonewall riots, every other state criminalized homosexual acts, even between consenting adults acting in private homes. An adult convicted of the crime of having sex with another consenting adult in the privacy of his or her home could get anywhere from a light fine to five, 10, or 20 years, or even life, in prison. In 1971, 20 states had quote, sex psychopath laws that permitted the detaining of homosexuals for that reason alone. In Pennsylvania and California, sex offenders could be committed to a psychiatric institution for life, and in seven states, they could be castrated. Through the 1950s and 1960s, castration, emetics, hypnosis, electroshock therapy, and lobotomies were used by psychiatrists to try and cure homosexuals. Um... So I just wanted to read that really quick to just give a broad view and say, like, I don't, you know, I don't want to in any way imply that, like, the battle is over and everything, everything in the United States is fine for gay people. Far from it. But I do want to contextualize this particular moment and specifically how radical uh, Kenneth Anger making films that were homoerotic, how radical that choice was. I am a, a cishet man, so I'm not speaking from kind of personal experience. But I guess I guess we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what we've seen in changes and in, in like how films talk about LGBTQ writ large.
1: I, well, okay, for me too. I can't I can't speak from personal experience. And also, I'm sorry, I always reference this show on this podcast, but it's, again, it's always on TV, but, um, okay, so I was born in 1986, and talking about how not normative sexuality gets depicted in films, I, I, I think of, like, um, Sex and the City, okay, which started, which is a TV show, of course, that started in 1998, but it's still really popular and it gets shown a lot on basic cable and, you know, a lot of people like that show. Um, but what a lot of people comment on is how not well a lot of stuff aged. I think despite the fact that a lot of us millennials and older don't think of 1998 as being that long ago. Um, but if you watch that show, gay people and LGBTQ people as a whole are accepted but still fetishized or depicted as weird. There there's an infamous episode about a character who's bisexual and how Carrie can't, you know, can't figure out what to make of him, right? Or, you know, certainly like transgender people are also present in the show, but depicted in not not a malicious way but just like you know kind of keep them over there they're kind of weird and again this show started in 1998 but i started to think well this is is this still kind of the case in more recent media honestly i don't really know because i don't feel like i watch a lot of super recent films and tv do you have any insight into that
0: well i think it really depends on how we define representation and what we think is kind of a victory or loss. I think about the comedies of kind of the the mid-2000s, right? So a lot of the, the Steve Carell comedies. So The Office and 40-Year-Old Virgin. There is one particular scene in 40-Year-Old Virgin in which Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd are sitting playing video games and kind of just trading barbs with each other about how, like, The other one is gay because X, Y, or Z. And I remember that scene actually being kind of complimented uh, by the Roger Ebert review of the film because his argument was, oh, well, this is this is a kind of progress because most of the jokes are that like, oh, that doesn't that has nothing to do with being gay right like that's kind of an absurd point point. and so this is the kind of comedy that was coming out that like that as well as the office known very much for it's like depictions of homophobia racism sexism etc with this kind of like john krasinski looking at the camera and mugging where we're all kind of in on the oh isn't that you know aren't these characters ridiculous and i don't think that's really something i've seen anymore I don't want to be too complimentary about us because I think we're still we're still very much a train wreck as far as LGBTQ representation, but we do seem to have passed this point where we think that presenting homophobia or transphobia with kind of a knowing smirk is somehow progressive or somehow positive. When so frequently it's you're just regurgitating stereotypes, you're regurgitating tropes, you're not building anything. Uh so I think that's kind of the biggest shift I've seen. Again, as someone who is cishet, I can't I can't claim kind of any any kind of authority or expertise. I do, I feel like I have noticed that personally.
1: Well I was thinking the other kind of cultural touchstone I thought of was uh Brokeback Mountain, which I believe came out in 2006. And that was very lauded for its depiction of the relationship between um, two men, Keith Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay, I saw that a long, long time ago, so perhaps I would think differently of it if I saw it now. I remember when I watched it thinking their relationship was presented as super sexualized and like it was missing an emotional element it was certainly like a step above a lot of other media, but that was another issue. And also, you know, the two actors playing those characters are straight.
0: They, they both did go on pretty, pretty soon after to do very, or rather Jake Gyllenhaal did Jarhead not that long after. So he's like tough soldier and Heath Ledger doing um,
1: Casanova. Casanova, That was the the next thing I was going to say, right? That it was rumored that, They had to go kind of straighten up their image, pun intended, after being in a movie like that to make sure that it didn't damage their, I guess, marketability as straight actors in the cultural context of the time. I did want to mention that even though I haven't seen a lot of more recent material, I think It's become a lot more normalized to be LGBTQ or to be open about it if you are a public figure. And since I don't watch a lot of newer TV or a lot of newer movies, that's where I get exposed to maybe the changing cultural tides a little bit more.
0: So let's dig down into the specifics of the film. So one thing I wanted to mention, we've talked about this idea a lot on this podcast, is the use of montage and also the Kuleshov effect. So for kind of a a brief reminder, the idea of montage was pioneered by Sergei Eisenstein. It was the idea that meaning was derived from like, the sequences of shots, how they were put together, how one shot bounced off the other one. The Kuleshov effect, pioneered by by Soviet filmmaker Lev Kuleshov, was more specifically the idea that two shots placed together can impact the meaning of one of them, right? Let's say you have a photo of a smiling man and then you cut to a birthday cake, we kind of understand, right? Like, oh, it's his birthday, he's happy. If you have a photo of a smiling man and then you cut to, like, a dead body or something, maybe he's a serial killer.
1: Oh, what about um, in the movie we talked about at the end of our horror series, Don't Look Now? The sex scene intercut with them getting ready for dinner. Would that be a good example of that?
0: Right, right. So those sequences kind of viewed, mashed up together, make you reassess what kind of what you're seeing in either one of them. Those are two very kind of famous uh, theories and understandings of film and filmmaking techniques. And I think they're very much applicable in this film because it is such a kind of dream logic, free flowing thing and particularly With the editing, it moves very loosely between, you know, throughout time and space, it bounces around a lot. And so we have a lot of examples of like specifically the Kuleshov effect. So we have a shot from, uh, I, I believe Kenneth Anger said he took these clips from like, a locally funded religious film. It's the sequences of the historical portrayal of Jesus Christ. And he goes and he gives a blind man sight. So we have that sequence. And then it cuts to a police officer leaving a parking ticket on a, one of the motorcycles. So we kind of see this playful, jokey way in which, you know, we have a savior giving someone sight and then we cut to police officers, and they're giving out parking tickets, turning them into a farce, right? Uh, We have a couple other examples of this. So the images of Christ and his apostles being intercut with the bikers in this film, drawing that comparison and and creating a bit of a parody of religion or a bit of of a parody of the bikers one way or the other. Also, kind of towards the end of the film, we have a biker holding up his helmet, and then we cut to a clip, like a zoomed-in clip of footage of Nazi soldiers specifically emphasizing their helmets, so kind of drawing, again, this, this line between those two ideas. So, Monica, I was wondering what, I guess, if, if there were any moments like this that struck you, and kind of what do you, what do you think of this as a strategy for, like, an entire 28-minute-long film?
1: Well, I think it's a very on-the-nose way to draw either contrast or parallels in the images that you're showing. But as we've said before on this podcast, subtlety is overrated maybe, or perhaps you don't have to be subtle to make a good movie. I think you kind of named the significant examples that I could think of. But it is, you know, pretty much throughout the whole film.
0: Well, I guess I'll give another one that I really like. Um, there, so this is kind of a combination of the montage Kuleshov effect and uh, construction of mise en scene because the um, kind of our protagonist, I, I saw a couple of sources call him Scorpio, but the blonde man that we're introduced to uh, maybe six or seven minutes into the film, he's the one reading the the comics uh, on his bed and we see uh against the wall he has these photos of like james dean and and marlon brando and so we kind of intercut between him and brando and i just i i really enjoyed that sequence because i was poking a lot of fun at him this kind of like wannabe mythical rebel type you know So next up, I'd like to talk a little bit about the music, which might be the most defining, most resonant element of this film. Like I mentioned earlier, this influenced uh, Martin Scorsese's filmmaking, and he's uh, a director, if you're familiar with his work, who taps really heavily into, into 60s and 70s rock and roll. And I think we can see those threads here. One of the more interesting elements about this film is that The soundtrack essentially serves the role of all the sound design in the film. So there's no dialogue. There's no real diegetic audio. We just have this sequence of 60s pop songs. And I think that that makes for a very interesting viewing. And it also makes these songs uh, uh, very important when we're talking about and analyzing the film. So first off, uh wanted to say that this is actually one of the earliest examples of a film using rock and roll slash like pop music as its soundtrack. Before this, again, with a lot of the other films we've covered, most film music was scores that were composed with, you know, a lot of string sections or like we talked about with The Man with the Golden Arm, like kind of a big band jazz feel and this is all just you know like songs essentially ripped off the radio so kind of in acquiring these songs and putting them on the soundtrack this was already a, a very radical act in terms of of film technique i did want to talk about a, a couple of moments in which the music kind of serves as a, as almost a narrator in the absence of a, of a traditional narrator, we have these songs and like their lyrics wind up serving some of the, some of that function. For example, we have Bobby Vinton's blue velvet, as I had mentioned earlier, and this plays over a sequence of the, the men, the bikers getting dressed up in specifically denim and leather, right? So these materials that are very coarse and and kind of you know like tough guy wear, etc. Which is which is kind of the polar opposite of what we think of when we're thinking velvet.
1: <laughs> it made me so crazy. Um, the shots where they were like putting on leather jackets over nothing, like just their bare torsos. Or there was one where they were putting on their boots with no socks on.
0: I I can't speak to this personally, but I think that is an element of like leather culture, right? Like this is kind of a subculture and that that idea of kind of leather on the skin, it, it, it kind of ties in with um, with S&M pretty frequently.
1: I don't understand it. Like, how do you care for your leather goods when you sweat directly onto them? It's so clammy. <laughs>
0: Well, but it's—I it's. it's I mean, there's a very strong sexual element to it as well. Another moment I wanted to mention, and I actually already alluded to this scene earlier, uh, where the almost bleach-blonde figure who's reading comics in bed, and we have the Elvis Presley track, uh, Devil in Disguise, uh, with the, um, the lyrics, you look like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise, you're the devil in disguise— all while we're kind of watching this figure intercut with these images of uh, James Dean, Marlon Brando, which I think also kind of foreshadows his role later on in the film when he's this violent semi-preacher in this old rundown church using the music as kind of a narration. And then uh, in perhaps a... I suppose the most on the nose sequence while the bikers are roughhousing kind of in the alley uh and they're doing this this kind of hazing ritual they're pu- pouring like hot mustard on this man's chest we have the song by Chris Jensen called uh torture this torture that I'm going through this kind of hazing ritual which I think emphasizes some element of kind of the BDSM play that's going on here. So Monica, I was wondering, what did you think of this technique as far as like using music as a, as a narration as kind of a thematic and almost plot device? And what, what are your more broadly, what are your feelings about using rock music in film versus kind of, you know, traditional scores like we were talking about before?
1: The way you pose the question in your notes is what do you think of this subtle narration in terms of the lyrics of the songs narrating what was going on in the film? And to me, I guess I didn't feel like it was subtle, but I felt like it was neat, just that they were able to pick out these songs that kind of exactly describe what's going on. Um, and I also thought that, you know, in other movies, when you have kind of rock pop soundtracks in the background. Because those movies have a, a dialogue for the characters, the lyrics from the song might get a little bit lost. But here, since you don't have any character dialogue, that really lets, lets the lyrics shine through.
0: Right. I think that's a really good point because um, I'm certainly guilty of this, but 90% of the time when I'm listening to a song, like I don't catch the lyrics or drastically misinterpret the lyrics. Here, in kind of the absence of dialogue, we have the meaning of these songs rising up. And so the lyrics here might be more self-evident than they were were you to listen to the song kind of by yourself, like when you're doing the dishes or, or vacuuming or whatever. Because you, you kind of have that, you know, I'm sitting, I'm watching a movie, I'm paying attention, And that kind of cognitive process that we go through to try and find narrative first and foremost, but then like kind of see the thematic elements below, I think the the lyrics reveal themselves uh, much more readily than they do if you're, again, listening to them and listening to these songs in the background.
1: I'm curious whether you think or how to what extent do you think the images that were paired with these songs accurately reflect the intended meaning of the songs, or if it's just kind of working with lyrics that are convenient.
0: I mean, I don't really know. I guess it... you know, you kind of get into the the question of what each artist meant by those lyrics, and a bunch of times, like a bunch of the the songs featured here, there there are multiple renditions of them. So the performing artist didn't necessarily write the lyrics. Uh, so it's kind of you know layer upon layer of obfuscation of of original intent. There are some elements where it's it's very clearly turning the song on its head. Like I I referenced earlier, um, the Chris Jensen song "Torture." which uh, I believe is about the torture of like being apart from a loved one. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then here we pair it with kind of, I don't want to say the literal act of torture because it's more kind of ritualized and, you know, it's, it's not kind of as we normally understand torture, but that very clearly is kind of using its meaning and turning it on it, turning it on its head. Whereas in, you know, in that sequence with the men getting dressed with, uh, with blue velvet on in the background, I think it's it's still doing that. It's kind of using that that contrast of like velvet versus leather, but in some ways to emphasize to like oh how we see blue velvet as being this kind of like grand romantic song, and then like extending that to this manner of dress. that might seem foreign to some of the audience, but that's you know that's more or less me spitballing. Next up, I'd like to talk about the themes and kind of other interpretations of this work. There's a really great article by Rachel Moore called Cultural Bolshevism at Capital's Late Night Show, Scorpio Rising, Uh, and that appeared in, after all, a journal of art, context, and inquiry. Moore argues that Scorpio Rising is really obsessed with and focused on the idea of cultural product, right? So she talks about the idea of simulacra like an uh kind of an impression of something that doesn't you know that never really existed uh in the way that we see it and how this film is really really obsessed with this idea so we see it again in the kind of constant brando james dean imagery we see it in the church and a lot of the the imagery from the church and the you know the the stock footage of the Sunday school film about Christ, right? We 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 see it in all these different ways how pop culture is almost replacing people that like these these figures their lives are so defined by this material that exists around them and through them and and even within the context of the soundtrack, right? Like the idea that that pop music and I think this is something that came up uh more later after, you know, kind of the 50s and 60s. But the idea that pop music is something that is kind of a disposable product, this this element of capitalism and that surrounding them, right? So that's like a little bit of what Moore was talking about in that article. I would I would highly recommend if you watch this movie, I would recommend checking out that article if you get the chance. Another uh, kind of statement that I thought was especially interesting was Kenneth Anger. His quote about the making of this film was that it was essentially quote, a death mirror held up to American culture thanatos and chrome black leather and bursting jeans which in some ways supports moore's idea that like there's kind of an absence of of humanity and there's a general sense of degradation because product has taken like so much of a role in this film and is so kind of on the front right front and center are pop culture images But then this is also kind of contradicted by the article Scorpio Rising by Jeremy Carr, which appears in Senses of Cinema. And I did have some difficulty finding other information on this, because I think, although Kenneth Anger is certainly more of an open figure than than someone like David Lynch, who is very tight-lipped about the meaning of his films, it's still quite difficult to find out kind of exact information on the production of some of his work. The point that Carr makes in his article is that essentially the film is somewhat akin to to docudrama, that a lot of the figures being filmed, they were being filmed kind of in their own private spaces. So in the synopsis, I alluded to the man who's working on his motorcycle and there's kind of the, the grim reaper who's looking over him. According to the Carr article, that was... A natural element of that space, right? That man owned that figurine. That's kind of how he had his garage, and he argued that like a lot of the film was like that, right? That the it, these were kind of things that were happening, and Kenneth Anger was approaching in in kind of a documentary style, which I think in in some ways kind of conflicts with again the Moore article and the idea that it it's so specifically deliberate. Uh, a commentary on kind of culture, the culture of consumerism. So Monica, I guess broadly speaking, I was wondering what your take on the film was and how useful is an academic impression of a film like this?
1: When I saw your question here in the notes, I wondered how specifically we were supposed to understand the messaging in the film and I wondered if I was the intended audience. So when I watch movies for the podcast, I don't read ahead about them other than just a basic what's this about. Um, I don't read any analysis or anything. So I just go in and watch. And without really reading ahead, when I saw this movie, I could understand the framing of gay men as rebels. And that made sense to me. But the Nazi stuff lost me a bit. And I felt like I might need the academic interpretation in order to understand better, which I don't know what that says about the film other than maybe I just don't didn't understand enough about the context going into it to understand it or that like I kind of said, I just wasn't the intended audience.
0: Well, I guess to, to speak a little bit on my personal relationship um, with the film, so I've seen it a few times before before but this is the first time they've really done any kind of investigative work into like its significance how it was produced uh, you know kenneth anger interviews with him etc cetera, etc cetera. i was a little bit apprehensive going into it because i think i liked it so much because i liked it as this kind of visual poem is this thing that like they're Again, certain elements, right the blue velvet over the men getting dressed that I think are pretty obvious the that immediate what what that immediate sentence is, what the immediate statement by anger is in that moment, but kind of the more broad context i didn 't really have a sense of, and I really kind of liked it that way, and I think there are a lot of films that I see that like I like on this kind of gut emotional level, the experience of viewing it that I don't necessarily understand in an academic sense. But since, you know, we're we're coming on here and we're talking about it, I think we kind of have the responsibility to dig into that a little bit. But to your point about, like, the Nazi imagery, I think this is something that's very interesting and troubling. My read of the film, after watching it this time, like you, I don't do any research into our films before we've watched them, other than, like, basic acquisition if i happen to see a brief synopsis or whatever so my read this time was generally a matter of tone right so we have this kind of rising action of all the men getting, you know, getting dressed up, getting ready, working on their motorcycles, right? Engaging in, the, in this, this activity that's like largely excitement. And during that sequence, we see one of the men put on a leather cap, which I don't believe specifically had any Nazi insignia on it. But was like kind of close enough in appearance that you, you know, it sticks out and like, well, what's, you know, what's going on here? But the rising action continues. And then we get to the point after, I suppose, Scorpio, the blonde man, does cocaine and then he leaves and goes. And we have the sequence of the men uh, roughhousing outside doing their, their kind of almost initiation ceremony. And that's intercut with Scorpio at the head of the church. And that's also intercut with a motorcycle race. I think at that point, the cuts start coming a lot faster. Earlier in the film, we kind of have these longer shots, longer loving shots of motorcycle parts and like this whole, you know, again, kind of the ceremony of the dress and the machinery and everything. And later in the film, we start getting quicker shots, and I I feel like it, not unlike fireworks, kind of marks this transition into a nightmare. All of the Nazi imagery, perhaps almost all of the Nazi imagery, occurs in the latter half of the film. And we're getting quick cuts, and we're getting comparisons to you know, between the the motorcycle helmet and then the, you know, the Nazi helmets and Nazi soldier helmets. And it feels like it's kind of in some ways revealing an internal, internal element of the people and the culture that are being profiled that perhaps shows it as being like initially seductive and then revealing itself at the end. The film ending with a motorcycle crash and the song Wipeout. So that was kind of what I, what I took from it generally. Another thing that Carr said in his article about this film was that apparently the... Like the Nazi flag and some of the swastikas were from like Kenneth Anger owned this material, right? Like it wasn't fabricated for the film or something like that was something he owned. So I wasn't really able to find any other information on that. Uh, I'm not really sure where Carr got that information, but I think that kind of throws a wrench into this I think it kind of complicates the read I had of the film and like it's kind of hard to see it as a criticism of Nazism which it seems like Kenneth Anger himself said it was when supposedly this was actually his property that I mean I think that that you know it kind of throws the entire thing into question
1: it could just be he had like a fascination with Nazism which may not mean that he supported it it could and that even having a fascination with nazism is maybe questionable but there's people out there who collect all kinds of stuff so we don't we don't really know i guess
0: i think you're right that there are a lot of people who have this kind of fascination with that imagery that wouldn't necessarily characterize themselves as Nazis or, you know, wouldn't necessarily be Holocaust deniers, wouldn't be white supremacists, et cetera, et cetera. But it kind of makes it complicated how you can, like, criticize something that you are visually attracted to to the point of like personally collecting, right? I I think it's possible for anger to make a film that he thinks is criticizing Nazis, but I think that that point winds up being undercut by his like personal fascination with that imagery.
1: Mhm. Okay, so like I told you I felt like I needed explanation about this film and the plot to the extent that there is a plot that we're supposed to understand in a straightforward way. At the beginning we see like two guys getting ready, right?
0: So it's really it's really difficult to tell because it's all white men wearing leather and jeans working on motorcycles, but I believe there are three <laughs> different figures.
1: Three okay, three of them and then one one of them is a neo-Nazi? Is that what's supposed to have happened?
0: Again, it's it's hard because it's like there is a plot, but it's not overly concerned with drawing those specific lines for you. I think the blonde one who I I believe is the kind of the titular Scorpio. I think the idea is that like, he's the Nazi, right? Or rather, at least he is the, the kind of like active politically vocal Nazi.
1: Okay. This is the kind of nuts and bolts stuff that I was getting hung up on where if I were just, as you were mentioning earlier, just watching the movie to kind of experience it, I could just let it go and been like, oh, that's interesting. And I got this and this little tidbits from it. The music was great. The end. But when I have to sit down and talk about it, I start getting concerned, like, well, what really happened? I don't (laughs) I don't really know how to analyze this. Uh, And then if we're not supposed to understand even what explicitly went on, what can I even say about it? You know?
0: Right, right, well, it is um, I think this film in particular is very difficult because uh unlike Heaven and Earth Magic, and this is I'm gonna kind of keep referring to Heaven and Earth magic because I think that's that's kind of an excellent example of of thoroughly art house material, unlike that, this film, very much had a plot. It's just only very loosely alluded to, but we can have that, that sense of forward momentum, like you were talking about what complicates it. This is my first time seeing it in probably eight or nine years. I've changed a lot since then. The world has changed a lot since then. The U.S. has changed a lot since then. And so, I think it, it's harder to to kind of accept this again as that like visual poetry, tone poem, like abstraction, when it engages with symbolism that means very specific, very hateful, very violent things. And I don't. If I were put on the spot, I wouldn't say like oh, this is clearly a pro-Nazi film. It doesn't appear to be that way. But I think that that does kind of push me to think like, well, I want to kind of understand exactly what it's saying about this, this like horrible, horrible thing, you know?
1: Well, and not to, I mean, I don't mean to state the obvious, but I guess Nazis were not fans of gay people. Like they threw them in the camps and stuff. So I think knowing that kind of, messed up my whole processing of the film. Cause I was like, well, automatically that must mean there must be an anti Nazi message in here. So to look at it another way and be like, well, maybe there wasn't, maybe it was neutral on Nazism. Then it's kind of like, I don't know what to make of it. Um, and it's not like people can't have conflicting ideas about stuff. But um, I mean, again, that was my automatic initial interpretation. And again, I'm sorry for like asking these super obvious questions now, but or, or like super like basic questions. But I I kind of he, he was drawing pretty explicit parallels between the kind of Bible stories and Jesus and what was going on with the biker gang. At least, you know, they were the figures would be in similar poses or similar positions when you would use the Kuleshov effect. Right. And you'd switch back and forth between the biker gang and Jesus and the Apostles. I kept thinking, like, I get it. The figures are in the same positions or whatever, but what is he trying to say about them?
0: Well, so I, I think this is something that we see frequently. So, like, the the surrealists, Dali and, and Buñuel, played around a lot with, like, Catholic imagery. And so I think there's some of that going on here, what with the kind of oncoming, like, cultural revolution having that freedom to question what was like so emphatically dominantly a cultural force in the States. It's odd because I think in some shots he uses the figure of Christ to mock, for example, the cop. But then in other shots, he kind of uses the bikers to mock Christ or perhaps to to kind of take that religious figure and those philosophies, those ideas, and then bring them down to the immediate cultural moment.
1: Do you think any part of it could just be shock value?
0: I can't say definitively not. And I think it's, it's possible that that's, that's like an element of it. Like this is, Oh, this will be, you know, this is like very taboo. I want to implement this. But I think a lot of times we'll kind of assume that something is done simply for shock value. But I think if, if something is rendered carefully and artistically and with, you know, it's like it's almost hand-drawn, it's so heavily crafted, this film, sometimes I tend to think, like, why would you put that much effort into something that would just, like, spook people? There was a really great joke in King of the Hill where they go to, like, a modern art museum and this guy made a painting and it's like a painting of Jesus and... And then you like look at it from a different direction and it's Hitler and the guy's just like, Jesus now Hitler, Jesus now right? Like (laughs) (laughs) that that I feel like that kind of shock is very easy to produce. So like why why kind of go to all this extra effort to craft something that's so much more elaborate? I guess it's uh, about time to cap this episode off. I was just wondering, Monica, if you had any kind of final thoughts or like a general evaluation of the film.
1: So this film is from 1963, which is not so long ago, but I think it's relatively early media. And I think seeing this is a good reminder for people that gay folks have always been around and their representation in this film, at least the way I understood it, which again, maybe I didn't understand this f- film very well, but the way I understood it was that the guys in this film are, you know, satisfied with their identity, even in the face of social taboo. I think we, you know, we're hopefully very much moving past this, but there's still like a sentiment that the LGBTQ community is an, a, a new phenomenon, right? But Clearly it's not. And you can see that in this kind of movie or, you know, I talk a lot about how I'm a member in these historical fashion groups. Um, And in those groups, people often will post pictures of, you know, gay couples from the early 20th century, for example, or transgender people from a long time ago. And they'll be like really sweet pictures and interesting pictures. And it's just that kind of affirmation that this is not something that, appeared 30 years ago or something so i just think this kind of media is really important to acknowledge and to see
0: i agree i think this is a tremendously important film in a, a tremendously accessible one and um It's only, it's really, it's only 28 minutes of your time. Um, and again, like Kenneth Hinker has been extremely influential on cinema. This is a really, I think a great introduction to his, uh, film kind of sensibilities. Uh, I did want to mention, while this is kind of always true for this podcast, there is a tremendous amount of material that we don't have time to really get into in depth, Uh, that pertains to this film. So, like, there's a lot of information about Kenneth Anger out there. We didn't really, you know, really touch on his semi affiliation with Satanism. We also briefly talked about leather culture, interacting with gay culture and BDSM. And that's, that's a very complex relationship. There's a lot of information there. And I think if you don't like, if you don't know that this is a great opportunity to kind of like start learning about it. There's so much, there's so many complicated elements that go into this film. Uh, That we just, you know, again, we just don't have time to talk about here. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and round it out today. First off, I want to mention my sources. There's a really great interview with Kenneth Anger uh, titled Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger Interviewed, which was conducted by David Motes at The Quietus. Uh, As I had mentioned before, the article Cultural Bolshevism at Capital's Late Night Show, Scorpio Rising, which was written by Rachel Moore and appeared in After All, a Journal of Art, Context, and Enquiry, as well as the blog by Jeremy Carr on Scorpio Rising, which appeared in Senses of Cinema. And as always, Wikipedia was tremendously helpful. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, we're Maybe Today Matinee at Gmail. And as always, if you want to help us grow, we're on Patreon, Maybe Today Matinee. Uh, incredibly thankful for anything you choose to contribute. Uh, every penny is valued. Next week, we're going to be talking about a couple of Disney shorts uh, starring George Geefe, aka Goofy, from the 1950s. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee.